Good evening, guys. It seems as though the passage this morning out of Proverbs is going to line up very well with some of the verses we're going to study tonight. Unfortunately, I was not able to be in the service this morning. I was in child care, and so we're going to try to touch on something that, uh, that you may have already heard. There may be a little bit of, of redundancy, but um, quite honestly, it probably would do us all a little good to, to hear the Lord's word again and again and again. So let's get started. Have you ever made a mistake? Maybe you did something or said something or you acted in a certain way that as soon as you said it or you did it, you were like, uh-oh, that was bad. How did you react to that? What was your response to your misdeed? How did you think about yourself in the days, weeks, or months to follow? Now some hard questions. Did you ever experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Were you ever brought to a place of brokenness over your sin? To a place of repentance, a turning away from your sin and turning to Christ? If so, praise God, you are blessed in that you are most likely indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are counted among his people. The Bible tells us that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. We see that in Hebrews 12. If you've never experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or you've never been brought to a place of repentance for your sin, either you're perfect and you've never done anything wrong, or you may well be lost and still under the wrath of God, not having the Holy Spirit within you. If that is your experience, if that is your case, pray that the Lord would examine your heart and reveal your condition to you and call you to repentance and into salvation. For those who have experienced that conviction and the repentance that the Lord provides, were you ever reconciled with the one you offended or mistreated? How was your relationship after you were reconciled? How did you or how are you living with the person with whom you were reconciled? Well, tonight, we're going to see what the power of repentance and reconciliation can do in the life of a believer, in the life of a follower of Christ. As Blake said, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3. You may want to go ahead and turn there and mark that page. We're not going to start there. We're going to bounce around a little bit before we get there. 1 Peter 3 can be found on page 589 of the Chairback Bibles if you're using one of those. If you do not have a Bible that you can read at home, you're welcome to take that one as our gift to you. Before we get started in this passage, one of the things I want to make sure that we do is we keep this passage in its proper context. And generally when I'm speaking of proper context, I'm speaking of the historical context or even the biblical context. So where this passage fits in the canon of scripture or the flow of the Bible itself. But tonight, that's not what I'm referring to. We've done a pretty thorough job in our study of 1 Peter by looking at the historical context of this letter, who it's written to, what their experience is. And if you want to review those discussions, you can listen to the previous teachings on 1 Peter on the CCBC podcast. No, tonight the context or the lens that I would have you view this passage through is that of the author, Peter himself. So what do we know about Peter? What do we know about this man who wrote this letter? He was one of the earliest disciples called by Jesus. We see this in Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 5, and John 1. All of these passages 
record the calling of Peter to follow Jesus. He was one of the inner circle of Christ among the twelve. In the list of the apostles in the New Testament, Peter is always listed first as a sign of his leadership among them. And you can see those lists in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. So what we see is scripture is full of little insights into the character and makeup of this man, Peter. But tonight, I want us to focus on one area of Peter's life, one little period of time. And that is of his broken relationship with Christ and the restoration that followed. Okay, so keep your place marked in 1 Peter 3 right there, but if you would, turn over to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to pick up with verse 54. Luke's Gospel in this chapter, chapter 22, is where he contains the account of the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Verse 54, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now you may be asking yourself, why is it that I share this passage out of Luke with you, especially considering the fact that we're in the middle of a Bible study in 1 Peter, right? Well, here's the thing that I'm sharing and why I want us to focus on this period of Peter's life. It's to ask this question. How can Peter who we see in this account in Luke and in the other Gospels, who just denied Christ before a servant girl around a fire, writes so boldly, as we'll see in a few minutes in 1 Peter 3, to his readers. His readers, who we already know based on the context of this letter, are persecuted believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. Well, fortunately for us and for Peter, Jesus does not leave him in that broken condition. No, he reconciled with Peter, and he brought him to a place of repentance and restoration. And we see that in John 21. So go over and flip over there with me real quick. John 21. I'm going to kind of paraphrase this, and then we're going to get down into the meat of it, okay? You remember the scene here. Jesus had told the apostles to go on to Galilee and wait for him there. And they went, but they got tired of waiting. waiting. Peter said he was going back to fishing, and the others went with him. And after fishing all night and catching nothing, they returned to the shore, and there they encountered Jesus. Jesus instructs them to let down their nets, so they obey, they let down their nets, and they catch so many fish that they can't bring the nets into the boat. And John recognizes Jesus and says who it is. 
And Peter, in his rush to get to Christ, jumps in the water and rushes to shore. And later in that chapter, we read this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was broken. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. Peter appeals to the omniscience of Christ. He knows everything. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to go. But now, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is a beautiful example of Christ's love and mercy, of Christ the good shepherd going after one of his own and bringing him back into the fold. And he will do the same for each of us who are his. He will go after us. He will hold us close, and he will bring us back into the fold. Later, following this reconciling work of Christ, and after the ascension of Christ, Peter and the other disciples experience the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them, as Jesus promised at Pentecost. This account is recorded in Acts 2. A bit later in Acts 2, in that chapter, we can see a very different Peter. We see a Peter who is emboldened, if that's even a real word, emboldened, But we see him speaking in Acts 2 and then Acts 4 boldly and preaching in the name of Jesus. On both of those accounts, Peter is doing exactly what he's encouraging his readers to do in 1 Peter 3. Having no fear of those who would persecute him. Giving a defense for the hope that is within him. Keeping a good conscience and in the end suffering for doing good. So with all this firmly in mind, let's dive back into 1 Peter 3 and take a look at this text to see what the Lord would have us to learn. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. In looking at these verses, two themes jump out to us. These two themes we'll use as our points for tonight's study. Point number one, suffering for Christ's sake or for what we believe. Suffering for Christ's sake or for what we believe. 
And then point number two, sharing the gospel by telling others about the hope that we have in Christ. Sharing the gospel by telling others about the hope that we have in Christ. Peter opens this passage with the idea of suffering harm for righteousness' sake. And he closes with the idea of suffering for doing good rather than doing evil. The concept of suffering bookends this section of Scripture and points to verse 15, which is right in the middle, and it's here that Peter instructs his readers to be prepared to tell others about the hope that we have in Christ. So let's take a look at that first point. Suffering for Christ's sake or for what we believe. Peter begins this passage with a rhetorical question, and really one that connects this section to the preceding verse. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The word in ESV translated now, in other translations, is translated and. We see that in the King James, New King James, and NASB. This word connects verse 13 with the preceding thought in verse 12. So look back at verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. With this frame firmly in place, Peter then asks, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's like he's saying, because of this, because of verse 12, because the Lord has his eyes on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, and his face is against those who do evil, then verse 13 is true. That is a rhetorical question. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The word harm here is the Greek word kakao, and in this instance it means to do evil to someone, to ill-treat them, plague, or injure them. This is the same word used in Acts 7, 6 as Stephen is preaching about how the Israelites were afflicted, kakaoed, in the land of Egypt. We see it again in Acts 12, 1, where Herod the king laid violent hands on, kakaoed, some who belonged to the church. So in one instance, this word relates to the physical harm or evil that someone would do to another person. Now you may be asking yourself, why is Peter making this statement or asking this rhetorical question, especially knowing that those believers he's writing to are suffering? Knowing what they're experiencing, he asked them, who will harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Could he possibly mean that they could escape the persecution if they're just good? I mean, isn't that what we hear? Is he telling them that they can have their best life now if they just live rightly, right? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not his point here. Now, he may be communicating to them that as a general principle, it's hard for people, even those who are wicked, to mistreat a truly good person. There are several commentators that suggest that that is his meaning here. However, there are others, and I kind of agree with these, that believe Peter is meaning with this word harm is of a deeper, more overarching meaning than just on that surface level. The suggestion is that who is there that can do you any ultimate harm? For a little more clarity on this, Romans 8.31 talks about it. So if you want to flip over there to Romans 8.31, follow along there. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see Paul writing and using four rhetorical questions, very similar to what Peter's already used in 1 Peter 3. And they're getting to the same point. Brothers and sisters, it is this. They're not talking about harm to this temporary dwelling place. If we look at this idea of suffering harm through the lens of Peter's life, we can see his meaning. Peter, who denied Christ before a servant girl around a fire the night of Jesus' arrest, but after being restored and reconciled to Christ and later filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke so boldly before the rulers of Israel in Acts 4. He had seen the risen Christ, and he is encouraging his readers, knowing that there is no one that can do them any ultimate harm. And he says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This brings us to another question. What does it mean to suffer for righteousness' sake? What does it mean to suffer for righteousness' sake? According to Spiros Zodiades, this idea of suffering means to be subjected to evil, to be affected by something from without, to be acted upon, to undergo an experience. So take that idea of suffering and combine it with this thought of righteousness. The idea of righteousness here, Zodiades says, it means a conformity to the claims of higher authority that stands in opposition to lawlessness. Righteousness is the state commanded by God and standing the test of his judgment. The righteousness of God is the claim which God has upon man. In order for man to recognize and fully submit to that claim of God upon his life, he must receive God as he offers himself and his righteousness to him as a gift. Romans 5.17 Zodiades goes on to say, Man can only accept the claim of God upon his life as he repents of his sin and receives Christ as his Savior by faith. He thus becomes a child of God, realizing God's claim upon his life by the miraculous regenerating action of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of words. And for a simple-minded person like me, I've got to boil that down a little bit. So what does all this mean to us here? It means that suffering for righteousness is to experience evil because we've been regenerated or been made new by the Holy Spirit, and we are living in submission to and obedience to the commands of God. This suffering for righteousness sake is not uncommon among followers of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself warns us to expect this in John 15 when he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. 
But all these things I, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So we not only see the Lord Jesus Christ warning of the suffering and persecution that is to come to those who follow him, but we also see it in his betrayal, arrest, trial, and ultimately his sacrificial death on the cross. You can find these accounts described for you in Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 22 and 23, and John 18 and 19. You may be saying to yourself, yes, Jeff, but that was Jesus, the perfect son of God. He fulfilled what he came to earth to do. Surely God doesn't expect regular people, a regular person like me, to suffer like that, right? I mean, we hear all the time, if we just have enough faith, all of our problems will go away. Well, Paul says it this way to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible gives us many examples of this persecution and suffering in the lives of believers. Just look at the accounts of Stephen in Acts 7, James in Acts 12, Paul even lays out his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. But take encouragement from this statement from Paul to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 16, he says, So do not, we do not lose heart. Though our outer, outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So as we look at this, we are seeing the suffering or this idea of suffering for righteousness sake becoming a bit more clear. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes a step further. He adds, you will be blessed. So where does he get this from? Suffering for evil because of our regenerated state and living in obedience to Christ, and it will cause us to be blessed. And what does that even mean? To answer this, we go back to Spiros Zodiades, the little Greek man, as some people have taken to calling him. The word blessed here means more than just being happy. The root word for the word happy focuses on favorable circumstances. No, the word blessed doesn't mean that. It's not focusing on favorable circumstances. The word blessed here means possessing the favor of God, that state of being marked by fullness from God. It indicates the state of the believer in Christ being indwelt by the Holy Spirit because Christ, and as a result, should be fully satisfied no matter of the circumstance. Blessed is having God's kingdom within one's heart, one who is in the world yet independent of the world. His satisfaction comes from God and not from favorable circumstances. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets are before you. So in review, what does it mean to suffer for righteousness sake and to be blessed? It means to be treated badly because you're a follower of Christ, living in submission and obedience to his commands. But if you are, you're blessed or you possess God's favor because you are counted worthy 
to be identified with Christ, 1 Peter 4, 13. This brings us to our second part, our second point. Sharing the gospel or telling others about the hope that we have in Christ. Guys, this is what it means to evangelize. This is evangelism. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So apparently Blake discussed the fear of the Lord in this morning's service, and this is tying in right here with what Peter's telling us. The opening words of this statement, have no fear of them nor be troubled, Peter takes his readers back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 8. The context of this verse in Isaiah is that of Judah facing an invasion. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16. As Judah and King Ahaz faced threat of invasion, they sought an alliance with Tiglath-Pilser of Assyria. The prophet Isaiah is sent to the king to give him the word of the Lord, and he tells him this. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. In this word to the king, God is telling his people not to be fearful of this situation or what the rest of the world fears, but rather fear the Lord God. As you may have heard this morning, I'm not quite sure where he went, but the fear, the word fear here is not only used in regards to being afraid of something or someone, but it's often used in reference to being in awe or reverence of something. In essence, to fear something is to pay it respect or to offer worship. Now remember, Peter's readers are scattered throughout the Roman provinces. The religion of the day in Rome was to worship and fear the emperor. Followers of Christ at this time were said to be atheistic because they did not worship the emperor. And as a result, they often faced severe persecution. Peter is using these verses from Isaiah, and he's calling his readers to see that they are to fear and reverence the Lord God. They are to worship God and God alone, not what those around them fear or worship. It's the same thing that we see Jesus warn about when he says in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we see Peter saying, do not fear, worship, or reverence what they fear, worship, or reverence. And do not be intimidated by them either. He's reminding them of the truth that he heard from Christ. Recorded for us in John 16, 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed has now come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After telling his readers not to fear or be intimidated, Peter then moves on to tell them what they should do. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So question, where are we to honor Christ the Lord as holy? 
Peter says, in their hearts. And in this word, he's not referencing the physical heart, that cardiac muscle responsible for pumping blood throughout the body. No. In this instance, Peter is referring to the seat and center of human life, the seat of our desires, feelings, affections, and passions and impulses. Oftentimes, in the New Testament, the heart is referencing the mind, will, and emotions, or that inner man. This is where Peter is saying we must honor Christ the Lord as holy in that inner man. Other translations say sanctify him in our hearts. That means that we set him apart, that we regard him highly, we venerate as holy or hallow him. This is the same turn of phrase used in the model prayer given to us by Christ in Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So how do we do this? How do we hallow Christ the Lord as holy in our heart? Well, it's by loving him and worshiping him. Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, in John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Finally, in verse 24, he uses the inverse. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So how do we show our love for Christ? How do we hallow his name? and honor him as holy in our hearts by keeping his commandments. Psalm 119 repeats this thought over and over and over again. In fact, Pastor Blake has encouraged us multiple times to spend time meditating in Psalm 119 in its truths, truths like we see in verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In those words from the Psalms, can't you just hear the voice of Peter echoing, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts? Or even the words of Christ, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now I have to pause right here and say this. We cannot do this on our own. It's only possible for a person to do this, to keep the commands of Christ if they have a new heart. They can only do this if they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit due to the finished work of Christ. A natural man could never do this on his own. So I ask you this question. What will living this way in our world today lead to? Tribulation? Persecution? Yes, most likely so. At the very least, living this way in our world today, just as in Peter's day, it will cause you to stand out. It will cause you to be different, and others will notice it. And when they do, they'll want to know what makes you so different. They will see how you respond and react to situations in your daily life, in your workplace, at the ball fields, in the store, at a restaurant. Guys, in my line of work, I'm the principal of an Arkansas public high school. I have multiple opportunities every day to live this out, and sadly, I have to tell you, I fail repeatedly over and over and over again, but God is good and gracious and gives me multiple opportunities to try it again and try it again. So when we're in that moment, what do people see? Do they see the outflow of our hearts? Are they seeing the fruit of your faith in Christ? Remember the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. And no, the fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut, 
That's for my boys over there who absolutely aren't listening. We have this little joke in our family. You know, there's this children's song, the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut, and it teaches what the fruit of the Spirit is. No, I'm talking about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is this the outflow of your heart that others can see when things don't go well for you? When someone insults you or maligns your good name, isn't this how we should be standing out in our world today? How to live righteously? Yes, we know this to be true. And when others see that, what do they often do? When they see that in you, what are they thinking? What are they asking? They ask, how can you just let them say that about you? How can you just take that? Don't you want to fight back? When they ask those questions, what do you say? It's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, yes, in my flesh, I do want to say something. Yes, in my flesh, I do want to do something. But I'm not going to do that. And here's why. And then we share with them what makes us different. We share with them the reason for the hope that is within us. Remember from 1 Peter 2, the example of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Brothers and sisters, this is the reason for the hope that is within us. Jesus has borne our sins in his body on the cross, and we carry them no more. We are no longer under the wrath of God, but we have been forgiven. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's wrath has been satisfied, and that is a beautiful truth to be shared. So what is Peter telling his readers here to do? But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set the Lord apart in your heart and hallow his name, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That phrase, make a defense, is where we get the idea of apologetics from or defending the faith. So here's the thing. Defending the faith means to give a reasoned or logical response. It means to be able to say what you believe and why you believe it. So going back to that question that Blake was asking and giving that book away, brothers and sisters, what do you believe? If you had to give a concise explanation of the gospel, could you do it? What if you were on trial? Could you clearly state your case? That is exactly what Peter did in Acts 4 in front of the Jewish council. That's what Stephen did right before he was stoned. That's what Paul did in Acts 21 through 23. These are just a few examples that God's word gives us. So Peter is saying, keep the Lord set apart in your heart. Be ready to make a reasoned, logical response or give a defense for why you believe what you believe. And he says, do it with gentleness and respect. Why does he add that? Do it with gentleness and respect. Well, who are you representing to the world? He tells us why we're to do it with gentleness and respect. He says, so that we can be sure to keep a good conscience. And why is that? So that when you are slandered, notice it says when and not if you are slandered. 
When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Imagine if the only thing someone could say against you is that you are behaving too much like Christ. What would that look like? Acts 14, 13 says this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. May that be the only accusation that be able to be made against us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this word that you've given to us tonight. May we continue to meditate on these truths throughout this coming week. Help us to fear you rather than fearing man. Help us to be ready to tell others about the reason for the hope that is within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.